All right, let's get started. This is the QTR Podcast. Happy to have you here with me. Today is March 2nd, 2022. All hell is breaking loose in the world, but we're here with each other for, you know, an hour or so, so uh, let's hop to it. First and foremost, I want to shout out the people that make this podcast possible before we get started. Those people include my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. And here they are. First and foremost, my friends over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion is my exclusive gold and silver provider. They are the only people I buy gold and silver from. Uh, They turn around my orders quickly. They have been in business for a decade. They've done over $3 billion in sales. Just wonderful people to do business with. And a longtime partner of my podcast, which I appreciate. If you are in the market for gold or silver, and we'll talk about today why a lot of people might be in the market for gold and silver soon, uh, you may want to shoot them a call. You can email Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. She'd be more than happy to help you out if you don't feel like navigating the website and dealing with uh, buying it on your own. Maybe you have questions. Uh, the people at JM Bullion are just wonderful. They've been wonderful partners of the podcast, and I am happy to continue to shout them out and let people know that that is the last place that I bought my gold and silver bullion from, and uh, and I haven't ordered from anywhere since they have started supporting the podcast. I like JM Bullion. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Doomberg. Doomberg is my favorite Substack. I love reading Doomberg. It is 100% free. They take a skeptical view of markets. A lot of my Austrian-focused uh, listeners and readers would love their take on things. You can subscribe 100% free to Doomberg by clicking the link in my podcast description. I've done interviews with Doomberg. Uh, they've really amassed quite a following and uh, and well-deserved because their work is fantastic. Speaking of people whose work I admire, George Gammon is also a sponsor of the podcast. His platform, Rebel Capitalist Pro, is George teaming up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson, and numerous other people that are far more intelligent than I am that rely on uh, far less dick and fart jokes to get through the discourse of their day than I do. (laughs) These are actual people that manage actual money, folks. You can check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. It's a great collection of live Q&As, informational videos. They have a wonderful forum over there with model portfolios that I love to check out. Uh, It's affordably priced. George Gammon's a great guy to do business with. And really, he's focused on preserving wealth in a world of -of out-of-control central banks. And uh, now with the added geopolitical volatility, who the fuck knows what to do? I sure don't. I don't know. I hope you're not tuning into this podcast because you expect me to have a clue, because I don't. Having said that, maybe a guy like George would. I mean, the guy wears fucking suits all the time. Anyways, this podcast also brought to you by my friends over at... The Steam Room, Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus have teamed up to bring you the Steam Room, which is the best piece of software for tracking options flow and options activity in markets. As many people, traders know, the options market can sometimes tell you where underlying equities are going to move. Uh, They are great tea leaves to read, and there's no better piece of software to do it with than the Steam Room. And uh, really, you know, these guys have been... Hello, Chris. Make a sentence. We're going to get through this today, folks. Keep your seats. The Steam Room's been a work in progress for 10 years. They've been constantly updating this piece of software. It's been evolving. It's aesthetically beautiful to look at, uh, and it's uh, easy to use. They really have a great community over at Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. These guys are originators of the terms option sweepers. They've been tracking options activity since before it was even a fucking thing. These guys were the originals. Okay, so if you're interested in any of those four services, links are in my podcast description. I know all of those people that run those businesses. You can reach out to them, tell them I sent you and that you want a free trial. You want to try shit out. You want a discount. You want this. You want that. They will work with you. Tell them you're a QTR podcast listener. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, my friends at Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camilla Sol, and also brought to you by my own blog, which is called Fringe Finance. Uh, Fringe Finance is my Substack. I've been writing now for almost a year. Uh, it's going really well. There's like 15,000 people that have signed up their emails. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a great place. If you enjoy the podcast and you want thoughts on a more daily basis and you want me to talk a little bit more about, you know, how I'm positioning myself personally, uh, Fringe Finance is a great place to do it. I also talk politics, macro, current events, and really whatever the fuck I want. I publish whatever I want. 
on that blog, all right? So there's uh, no guarantees and uh, and no fucking, you know what's annoying the shit out of me? Are these people that sign up and then they fucking contest the charge on their uh, credit card thing. Because as soon as you sign up, you get all the you get access to all the archives. You get everything. So everything I've ever written, all the stocks that I've written about. And then they go and complain to their fucking credit card companies. So anyways, I just want to put those fucking people on notice. And I wrote this actually in my About Me on my Fringe Finance blog uh, that I have uh, engaged an expert on how to fight these things because I'm tired of getting fucked over by them. And I wrote, I will fight contested credit card charges after you have access to all of my content with the vigor of a displaced Amazonian tribesman defending the sole tranche of remaining land still native to his ancestry from British settlers. Okay, so that's I'm ready to dig in if you want to try to pull that shit. Anyways, the blog really isn't that good to begin with. At least I'm warning you up front. And, uh, and let's get started today. I got a lot of shit I want to talk about. All right, the first of which, which is still fresh on my mind, is an incredible interview that I just listened to on Palisades Gold Radio, which is one of my favorite podcasts and one of the podcasts that I've appeared on several times um, that Tom Bodrovich just did with Luke Groman. Uh, I want to kind of summarize what they said and why it's important, and then we'll get on to everything else that I had planned on talking about But I just listened to this this morning, and I feel like you should, uh, after this podcast, tune in to uh, Luke Roman's, I think, March 1st interview on Palisades Gold Gold Radio and give it a long listen because I don't really uh, have the mental capacity to sum it up in a way that gets all the points across. Luke and Tom are much smarter than I am. But the gist of it was they start talking about the idea of, you know, what kind of leverage Russia has economically, right? So a couple of days ago on my blog, I wrote an article called, let me go to my blog, let me go to my blog. Russia and China might collectively challenge the dollar's reserve status. And the point of this article was that, look, now that we are implementing uh, economic sanctions on Russia and we are taking them out of the SWIFT system or taking a portion of their economy off the SWIFT system, Uh, Russia is backed into a corner. Somebody put on Twitter the other day, they don't really have any good off-ramps here. And it doesn't look like that. It looks like their army is facing more resistance than they had planned in Ukraine. It looks like Putin is backed into somewhat of a corner, uh, at least economically. The entire world has decided that it's stopping doing business with Russia. So if you're a company or you're a private citizen, it doesn't matter. You have pretty much broken off your ties with Russia to this point. Everybody from FIFA, who's saying they won't be included in the World Cup, to uh, who did I see this morning? You know, Shell backed out of a joint venture with uh, Rosneft, which is one of the oil super majors in Russia. Uh, You know, uh, all the social media companies are stopping service in Russia. Everybody is pretty much pulling out of anything that has to do with Russia. And this puts Putin in an interesting situation. Because with the ruble in free fall a couple days ago, and right now the ruble has steadied a little bit, um, he's starting to realize that, you know, he's going to have to ally himself with China economically, I think. This is all opinion. None of this stuff has happened yet to my knowledge. But what has happened up to this point is there's a long history, a decades-long history now, of China and Russia moving to de-dollarize themselves. You know, Russia in 2018 dumped a bunch of its treasuries and has been stockpiling gold over the last five years, 10 years, uh, to the point where, you know, it's gold reserves, as Tom Bodrovich says, you know, it's gold reserves are uh, an arrow going right and up and it's uh, holdings of U.S. treasuries are an arrow that's going right and down. And so uh, they've been trying to get themselves off the dollar. And Xi, uh, President Xi over in China, has also been stockpiling gold. I wrote about this. I, you know, wrote before that I think China will back its digital currency with gold. And I still think that that's going to happen. I think it's the only practical way for China to try to jostle for position economically on a global scale. But now, all of a sudden, Putin and Xi really need each other. And even though there were some comments out yesterday about China urging peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. I think that uh, China is going to be looking at Russia for investment opportunities and Russia is going to be looking at China for economic stability. 
Now, certainly, these two countries pulling themselves off of the rest of the global economy um, is not going to be a uh, smooth and uh, easy transition. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible. And again, with Putin's options limited right now, it doesn't mean that it may not be the best course of action for him. So there's a couple things that we need to examine here, right? Will the two of these countries basically start a banking system on their own uh, outside of, you know, start an economy on their own that bifurcates from the Western world? Well, that's a possibility. Uh, you know, China certainly has the productive capacity and Russia certainly has the uh, commodities for them to be able to do that. You know, China produces uh, a good majority. They're our number one uh, source of imports in the U.S. And I even wrote it here in my article. Russia has a tangible, ha, excuse me, Russia has tangible reserves in the form of oil and gold. Russia is the top supplier of imported gasoline in the United States. In 2021, Russia accounted for 21% of all U.S. gasoline imports. China is a major supplier of basically everything. Uh, in the West, on a daily basis, basically everything we use comes from China. Uh, they were the U.S.'s largest supplier of goods imports in 2020. They're currently our largest goods trading partner uh, with $559.2 billion in total two-way goods traded during 2020. Uh, and so obviously everybody knows China produces and the only thing we export are dollars. So when it comes down to brass tacks, if the two of these countries want to band together and try to challenge the dollar, they could do it. Right. And what does and look, you know, all these experts say, well, that'll never happen because of this, this and this. Yeah. Well, look, it doesn't even have to be a guaranteed success on paper for them to do it. I mean, it could just wind up that we're going to be in a fucking mess for the next decade as a result of this and that the global economic system will never be the same after this. Or it's possible that, you know, Russia and Ukraine agree to a ceasefire and uh, and none of this stuff happens. But. If you were positioning yourself to challenge the dollar, you would be doing what China and Russia have been doing over the last decade. Now, this is from the Washington Post in April 2021. All right, so we're talking about basically a year ago. China and Russia have vowed to jointly de-dollarize, creating alternatives to the current system with a three-step plan that began a few years ago. Okay, so listen, this is the plan. First, both countries began to cut back the proportion of their bilateral trade invoiced in dollars. Okay. Second, they've sought to boost the renminbi's role as an international currency for payments and reserves. That's China's currency. Third, uh, the last leg of these efforts, which is still underway, aims to create alternative payments and messaging systems, allowing countries to use home and partner currencies instead of dollars or euros. That basically means that they've been working on a system outside of SWIFT for years already, right? So this might be exactly what both of these countries have been preparing for. And to be honest with you, they're preparing for it in the best way possible, Right, They have immense productive capacity. They have immense commodity production capacity. And they have been hoarding gold. And that's exactly what you would be doing if you were trying to make this type of challenge to the U.S. dollar. The Washington Post, I think they were spot on. As I said, you know, far be it for me to agree with the fucking Washington Post. But they said in 2021, if China and Russia devise successful alternatives to the dollar-centered financial system and if these alternatives gain significant international traction we would be witnessing a cataclysmic moment in great power power rivalry okay so think about that now and think about what the catalyst could be to put a situation like that in place right how do you go from you know paper to uh practice on an idea like that well you need some type of catalyst and a hot war would serve as that type of catalyst as danielle demartino booth told me back in 2020 when we were talking about, hey, you know, what could be the events that wind up pinning China against the dollar? You know, you want to talk about being called a fucking conspiracy theorist, talking about this shit back in 2020. And, you know, really, I believe strongly that China will back its digital currency with gold. I think they have to. I think it's just, you know, it's, it's something I've been talking about for a long time. I think it fits the way that they do business. And I think that it is a... 
um, you know, I think that they want to become an economic superpower, and I think that's the way to do it, to uh, to back the currency and make it digital. Right? You get the benefits of digital with the benefits of being sound, right? Being backed by gold. You can tell me there's a million reasons why it's not going to happen. I've been talking about it for years. It looks now like it's closer to reality than it ever has been. And again, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if it were to happen, it would certainly be right along the path that we're on now, right? Russia dumping U.S. treasuries and increasing its uh, FX reserves. You know, the two of them ditching the dollar in a move towards a, quote, financial alliance, quote. That's what Nikkei wrote in 2020. Okay, so now you're talking about two years ago. They wrote, de-dollarization has become a priority for Russia and China since 2014 when they began expanding economic cooperation following Moscow's estrangement from the West over its annexation of Crimea. Replacing the dollar in trade settlements became a necessity to sidestep U.S. sanctions against Russia. Okay, so these guys have been thinking about this for years now. And, uh, and I also wrote in here, you know, remember that Russia was kind of begging China to help collapse the U.S. financial system after 2008. Um, Insider wrote in 2010 about Hank Paulson's memoir that Hank Paulson had said, Russia may have tried to conspire with China in a bid to collapse the U.S. financial system. They were hoping to sell Fannie and Freddie bonds during a time when the U.S. Co- economy was on the ropes, right? And so Russia was pushing China to kind of take us to the brink economically. So this idea, this concept, it isn't new, okay? This is something that these two countries have been thinking about for a while. And now you have either the idea that they were planning it, and so they're going to go and invade Ukraine anyways because they know that they have the economic retaliation, or, right, that could be one scenario. The second scenario could be that Again, Putin is backed into a corner. His army is getting a little bit more resistance than he thought it was going to. And now all of a sudden he's got these economic sanctions that are crippling the ruble. But he's sitting on all these reserves. He's not really as reliant on the dollar as he was. And he's got you know gold and oil coming out the ass. So wouldn't this be a time to say, all right, well, maybe if this is a plan that we had, this might be a time to put it in action? Possibly. You know, either way, it's high time for us to consider the dollar, right? Over the last decade, I've been harping on how we are destroying the dollar, how our reserve currency status is not a guarantee, and really just how arrogant our monetary policy has been. We we operate monetary policy under the assumption that we'll always be able to uh, we'll always be able to accrue debt. And that the dollar will never lose its reserve status. And now all of a sudden, it's time to take a look at that in a much harder way than we ever have. Because if China and Russia pair up and essentially ostracize themselves themselves from the economic system as we know it, and they say, all right, well, we're going to back our shit with gold. We've got the productive capacity. We've got the oil. And we're going to back our shit with gold. And by the way, as Luke Groman said this morning on that podcast, or yesterday morning, I listened to it this morning, you know, what if Russia decides to only take rubles for payment of its oil, right? That's going to raise a lot of interesting questions. Now, the first question, obviously, is going to be, can the world survive without Russian oil? Yeah, sure. But if they cut off Russian oil, I mean, you're cutting off, what, 10 or 20%, maybe 10% of the world's oil supply or 20% of the world's oil supply? So you're going to see oil prices go through the roof uh, in that instance. But maybe, you know, Russia says, all right, well, we'll alleviate some of that pain, but you got to pay us in rubles. Or this is all Luke Groman's idea, uh, not my independent thoughts here. But he said, look, maybe they'll ask to be paid in gold. And wouldn't that be a son of a bitch if it actually happened, right? Wouldn't that be an interesting thing? And Luke said on the podcast that, you know, if I were Putin, that's what I would do. And it makes sense, right? It makes sense. Because if Russia re-rates, you know, the ruble and oil to gold, uh, all of a sudden you're going to have a huge problem because people are going to have to sell out of dollars. They're going to have to buy rubles or they're going to have to buy gold. 
And Groman says, look, the second that that happens, you're going to have a crisis in the COMEX market because there's so much leverage. There's such a difference between the paper gold that people think they own and the actual gold supply that's out there that, you know, it wouldn't really even be a catastrophic meltdown. He just said, you know, the COMEX would just stop working. Everybody would be settled in cash. Nobody would be able to take delivery. And essentially, you know, he didn't say this, but essentially he alludes to the fact that the second that happens, you're going to get a blue screen of death. You know, shit's just going to stop fucking working. And you're going to have to start thinking about a reset and a solution that's larger than actually delivering the gold. And then, of course, he goes off on a couple other scenarios talking about, you know, what that could mean for the future of gold as a commodity, as a safe haven asset. What does it mean for gold miners going forward? You know, will they continue to be allowed to be private companies? So I want to recommend that everybody listen to Palisades Gold Radio uh, with Luke Groman March 1st. I think 2022 was the episode. Um, But this goes back to uh, my point in my article, you know, which is that our arrogant treatment of the dollar and our reliance on on being able to print it uh, has been a fool's errand. And like everything else, as I said about COVID, as I say about everything, we have to fucking find out the hard way. Because, you know, we get euphoric about something and we find a loophole and we exploit it and we don't stop. We're like an addict until they hit rock bottom. We don't stop until reality bludgeons us in the face. And it's a shitty way to learn. But, you know, it goes to my long-held belief that China... And maybe Russia, I don't know, but, you know, China specifically, that they do business in a far more shrewd manner than we do. And their their foresight has a little bit more depth than ours. And their understanding of the global economic system is likely better than ours. Um, and, I, you know, I, I don't like saying that. It doesn't make me feel good. I mean, I'm a patriot. I love the United States of America. I've got fucking American flags tattooed on my body. I love this country. Uh, You know, I speak out because I think it's important that we know that we might be lagging behind Um, because if they have a hundred year plan and they're willing to execute it over the course of decades instead of months like the U.S. And, you know, we have a we have a one year plan that we're looking to execute on an hour by hour basis. Well, who's going to win out in the long run? And that's when, you know, you start to piece these things together like, okay, well, here's what they were doing five years ago de-dollarizing well that's certainly interesting that you know the dynamic that it has created today given the hot war scenario isn't it and you know even like i wrote in my article even if the dollar holds its place as the world reserve currency um if it is challenged it's still going to create a lot of uncomfortable questions that we're going to have to ask ourselves about monetary policy and really our currency going forward And uh, these are the questions that almost always result in the answer being gold. Um, You know, and for some people, the answer will be Bitcoin, I'm sure, and oil and other commodities. Um, But really, the answer is going to be tangible assets. You know, another article idea that I had that I didn't write yet, I might write, I have, you know, portions of a draft written down, is how quickly war kind of makes us realize the harsh reality of things you know there there's no in in a situation of a hot war there's no dilly-dallying right nobody's worried about pronouns nobody's worried about esg investing nobody's worried about you know virtue signaling people are just worried about keeping the fucking lights on and making sure that they survive right so a hot war scenario strips away a lot of the nonsense that we debate and assign meaning to in times of comfort. Um, And, you know, those things really shouldn't have any meaning in times of comfort either, Um, you know, but it takes an uncomfortable scenario for us to realize that, right? Does it fucking matter what so-and-so calls me if I can't get the fucking lights to my house to turn on? If If I have to pay $15 a gallon for gasoline to get my car? You know, if and I would challenge you to ask some of the people in Kiev at some point, you know, 
how did their priorities shift from one day waking up and going to work and loving their family and going about the day to day and, you know, reading their kids' bedtime stories and worried about whether or not they're going to eat an English muffin or a bagel for breakfast to the next day worried about the sovereignty of their nation, the survival of their family and friends, and defending their country as well as their homes. I mean, that is a drastic, that is, that is the polls reversing in terms of priorities. And I don't know, maybe I have a jaded outlook on things, but for me, it's never been difficult to imagine the worst case scenario um, and use that to help drive a lot of my investment decision making um, because, uh, you know, when things are wonderful, things can only get worse. You know, <laughs> it's uh, it's sad, <clears throat> but things can only get worse. They can't uh, they can't get, you know, much better than a 37 X price to earnings ratio on the S&P. How do you justify valuation expansion from that point when you're riding so high on that bubble? Right. It's not easy to do. Um, but I don't understand why it's always been so difficult for people to realize that things do get uncomfortable. Um, they have to get uncomfortable. It's part of natural law. I talked about this with COVID and how damaging the idea of papering over the entire economy with Fed printed money was and the importance of understanding that we have to feel uncomfortable events. You know, we're human beings. We're a part of nature and nature isn't always comfortable. Matter of fact, if you're an animal, nature is frightening. You know, that's why animals are constantly in a fight or flight mode. They're constantly looking around and moving around and scared and nervous and fucking, you know, worried about eating and worried about surviving and worried about fucking. You know, it's like they got to get those things done and then they got to keep moving because something might be around the corner that's going to fucking kill me, right? That's the nature of things. And the sooner that we realize that, with regard to human behavior and drop the arrogant idea that we're always going to have the solution to things, uh, the better suited we're going to be for the future. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's a horrifying, unfortunate reality what's happening in Ukraine, but it's interesting psychologically to see how it changes the mindset of investors, you know, and what becomes important at times like this, Versus what was important just days ago? You know, what were the priorities like just days ago for the people in Kiev? Versus what are they like now? I mean, two weeks ago, uh, Zelensky was saying, hey, there's nothing going on. The Western media is drumming up a panic. There's nothing to worry about. There's no invasion. And one week later, you know, he's wearing a bulletproof vest and a helmet and asking for more ammunition to defend Kiev which is, it's a horrifying travesty, but shit gets real quick. Uh, Zelensky, in my book, gets fucking all the credit in the world. This guy is an official fucking G hanging in there, and if he survives this, um, I think he will be rightfully heralded as a hero on the world stage, and I think uh, he probably will be regardless of what happens. But talk about a lesson in leadership. Anyways... Everybody's got a plan till they get punched in the mouth. That's the Mike Tyson quote. And look, you know, you can, it's unfortunate that it takes a situation like this for people to realize that, but hopefully people understand the lesson of what's happening here. Um, and look, we're in a spot too where we really have to hope and pray that this doesn't continue to escalate either because uh, shit could still get far worse than it is now. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. A lot of experts have said Putin has become unhinged to the point where they don't even recognize him. So then the question is, you know, what does a guy like that do when he's backed in a corner? Things aren't going as well as he would like. The entire world is ostracizing him. You know, what's his next step? Has he been thinking about and planning this over the course of 10 years? Or is he flying by the seat of his pants and dealing with bad news as it comes in. If it's the latter, who the fuck knows what the guy's going to do? You know, a good example of this is, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn here because I get a lot of shit wrong a lot. Uh, but I do want to say that back in November, 
of 2021, I wrote about Lockheed Martin uh, and why I thought it was a good idea to invest in Lockheed Martin. And really, a large portion of my thesis was that we're approaching a rotation from growth to value. Now, this was before, you know, the 7% CPI print. This was before we were talking about hiking. This is, you know, I don't want to say I called it, but right about the time that I said, hey, I think the NASDAQ could be due for a catastrophic bubble, the likes of which we've never seen. And then fucking a week later, you know, we got a terrible CPI print. And here we are three months later in the middle of a hot war in Europe. But I wrote about Lockheed Martin that, you know, not only is the company cheap, but it can also hedge against macroeconomic and geopolitical volatility. And so nobody really thinks about that then. In November of 2021, nobody was saying, hey, this is a brilliant idea. Sneeze. <coughs> COVID. Reminds me of that scene in Ferris Bueller when he's talking to the guy on the payphone at the school. And he's playing the fucking sneezes and coughs on his keyboard. And uh, somebody picks up the phone. They're like, hey, how you doing? He's like, I think I might be dying. And then he hits fucking sneeze and cough. <coughs> right one after the other. And the girl on the other side of the phone's like, shit. <laughs> he's like, I don't know. I think I might need a kidney transplant. <laughs> what a fucking great movie. Um Oh, man, I get distracted too easily. But look, nobody was heralding this Lockheed Martin call in November 2021 as prescient. The stock was at $350 a share. And who's the asshole talking about geopolitical volatility? Are you kidding me, Chris? The world is fucking holding hands and singing songs together. The market indices are at all-time highs. We're entering a period of insane, you know, total euphoric, massive, uh, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, global circle jerk. Uh, you know, nothing has been better. We're coming out of COVID together. Uh, you know, we're we're getting rid of the mandates. We're getting rid of this, that, and the other. Um, nobody wants to talk about a hot war. It's not going to happen, right? So didn't get any comments heralding me for my foresight then. But now, you know, Lockheed Martin is $450 a share. It's up another 17 bucks today. It was up $25 yesterday. Uh, in the last month, it's up 16%, $63 per share. In the last six months, and since I wrote about it here, uh, I think I wrote about it was at about $340 a share. And uh, it's up 26% in the last six months. Why? Because I was thinking about the idea of a hot war at the least likeliest time. Now, I don't want to toot my horn. I get a lot of shit wrong, a lot. And I'm like, you know... Read my disclaimer on my blog. I get shit wrong a lot. And I have lost money investing in things, you know, so I'm not I'm not the world's greatest investor. But I'm just trying to make a point that you kind of have to like unfuck your thinking a little bit and start to put yourself in the mindset of a contrarian if you want to come up with any ideas. Uh, and really, what is the contrarian idea right now? The idea is that the ruble is done. And Russia is toast. And Russia's economy is toast. And the thing I liked about this Luke Groman interview this morning was, you know, all it talked about was the leverage that Russia has. All of the oil that they're producing. Not only do they have a shitload of gold, but they have all this oil. And that's their leverage, right? So if they want to settle in gold or they want to force people to settle in rubles, they still do have a lot of the leverage. And let me tell you something. I, don't, I can't remember if they talked about this or not. But I wrote about this the other day. If you don't think that the Chinese are looking at real tangible Russian assets that produce other real tangible assets and commodities at these discount prices, then you're not thinking because there is a major buying opportunity here for somebody. The question is, how do you do it strategically and do it so that, you know, your investment doesn't evaporate when the West decides to levy further sanctions against Russia? Well, if you're China and you plan on uh, removing yourself from <clears throat> the global economy as it is and starting anew of sorts, then you really don't have to worry about that. Because if you back your digital currency with gold and Russia takes delivery, uh, takes, you know, um, 
not delivery, but they take payment in gold. Well, then all of a sudden you guys are working on a different system. Gold has to re-rate and the West has a lot of fucking questions it's got to start asking. Um, but, you know, look, going back to <clears throat> going back to Lockheed in November 2021, I said, look, it trades at a forward PE of 12. Okay, 12. Nothing in the market. Fucking automakers weren't even trading at a PE of 12. Thanks to the, the EV boom, you know, they were they were even trading at a 20 PE. Traded at a Ford PE of 12 in November. Okay, and I was looking at other staples like Procter & Gamble was trading at 26 times earnings. Johnson & Johnson was at 24 times earnings. Uh, you know, Raytheon even 40 times earnings. Same, same type of stock, Raytheon, defense stock. You know, I said, look, they're buying back stock. They got a lot of earnings power. They're generating cash. They pay a 3% dividend. You know, none of that shit meant anything to anybody in November. You know, even though I don't understand how generating cash couldn't mean something to you. If you want to follow the growth narrative all you want, it's still like, yeah, you know, you buy shit in cash. Like, you want cash, but fucked if I'm going to try and understand all that right now. But it didn't mean anything then, but all of a sudden it means something now. All of a sudden, cash generation, access to tangible assets, and in this case, defense, they mean something now. I wrote, look, the company is basically a wholly owned subsidiary of the United States Department of Defense, which, uh, you know, look, if that, if it goes down, it means the DOD went down, and then we have much bigger problems, and it acts as a hedge against any type of hot war scenario that could wind up damaging other stocks. That's what I wrote. Uh, about Lockheed Martin. And here we are, 26% higher. And there was one comment and nine likes on this article. So pretty much nobody read it. And I want to I wanna look at how many views it got back then and see exactly, relative to the amount of views that I get now on articles, how many people paid attention to this call uh, back in the day. One blue chip value stock I absolutely love despite the total market hysteria. So there were, uh, it got 1,300 views. Some of my other articles get, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 views. My one about Joe Rogan got like almost a million views. That one was, uh, that one went viral. But anyways, enough of me congratulating myself for all my success. Great job, Chris. Tremendous success. Not in any way overrated. Highly competent. What did Trump always say about his his properties when he was campaigning? Very little debt, enormous cash flow. <laughs> every every fucking property. That's what he said. You take a look at my company, very little debt, huge, tremendous cash flow. We've got Mar-a-Lago, we've got some of the best properties in the world. We've got Turnberry in Scotland. We've got Mar-a-Lago. We've got, what's the other one? What's the fucking other one in uh, in Florida? Not Mar-a-Lago. Um, oh, come on, dickhead. What is it? Uh, let's see. Doral. That's what it is. Doral. Everybody loves Doral. <laughs> Everybody loves Doral. Everybody knows Doral. I'd never even fucking heard of it until uh, 2016. But then I heard of it, you know, 26,000 times that year. Everybody loves Doral. We've all been to Doral. Yeah. We've all had $25,000 a plate dinners there. It's just my normal fucking weekend plans. <laughs> Line me up with a citywide special, all right, for $5. Give me a can of fucking Tecate and a shot of Heaven Hill whiskey. By the way, Heaven Hill whiskey has renamed itself something fucking stupid. I saw it yesterday. I was at the bar and uh, obviously talking about having a citywide special. And the bottle of Heaven Hill came out, and it said Quality House, I think, was the name that they've changed it to. So Heaven Hill Whiskey, which, by the way, Heaven Hill, I don't know how it is in the rest of the world, but Heaven Hill in Philadelphia was starting to garner quite a reputation as a wonderful budget whiskey. Because it is. It's a great-tasting whiskey, and a lot of people in the industry drink it because it's cheap. So if you want to give away shots to your friends in the industry, Heaven Hill is a great way to do it because you can use the whole bottle and, you know, the establishment is out, what, fucking $4, you know? <clears throat> and so especially some of the uh, places that I go to where I know people in the industry, it was always Heaven Hill when they would buy me a shot of whiskey. And to be honest with you, I kind of liked it. So over the years, I'm thinking to myself, ah, Heaven Hill is going to have like one of these like rebirths, you know, like champion, 
You know, t- 10 years ago, the Champion brand was like shit that like your dad wore. You know, it's just fucking $9 for, you know, a, a pair of pants and $4 for a sweatshirt. Now Champion has somehow become like luxury apparel. Well, I'm thinking like Heaven Hill is going to pull a fucking Champion. Right. Heaven Hill is going to you know, we're going to wake up one morning and we're going to see Heaven Hill like next to the Hennessy in some fucking rap video somewhere. So just as they're starting to make another name for themselves, this fucking guy pulls out the bottle yesterday and it says quality house. But the label looks exactly the same. So if you squint your eyes from far and you look at it, you're like, oh, that's Heaven Hill whiskey. No, quality house. Almost like, man, first off, why did you change the name? Second off, could you come up with a dumber fucking name than that? Is it possible is it possible to come up with a dumber name for Heaven Hill Whiskey than Quality House? You could have literally called the brand Human Shit, and that would be a better brand name because at least there would be some hilarious like conversations that it would stir up. You know, people go up to the bar, give me two shots of Human Shit. You know, you have a laugh with your buddies about it, and you set the bar low, right? You say to yourself, look, I'm drinking Human Shit, Obviously, if it tastes anything less than, like, total crap, it's going to be great. And so you have the shot, and you're like, eh, it's not the best whiskey I've ever had, but it doesn't taste like human shit. It's pretty good. And now all of a sudden, you know, human shit starts making a fucking, like, you know, making a run, like champion. It starts going down the champion path. But Quality House, you don't even know what that is. It sounds like the, uh, it sounds like the department that, you know, puts the little stickers on your pants that you buy at Uniqlo, you know, inspected by number 32, those things. What do you do? I work in the quality house. I make sure that the sewing on the bottom of the pants by the ankle is perfect. And then when it gets done with my quality house, it goes over to the next one. I put my little sticker on it and we all go home. But, you know, I, so I don't know what Heaven Hill's thinking. <clears throat> Obviously, that's not going to have much of an impact on my portfolio. Uh, I do tend to get distracted once in a while. Listen, listen to Luke Groman's podcast on Palisades Gold Radio. That's what I'm going to say about that. Now, there's a couple other things I want to address. By the way, there's not enough Heaven Hill whiskey in the world for me to be able to do the mental gymnastics necessary to wrap my head around whatever Ben Hunt was saying on the last podcast. I went back and listened to it again after I recorded it. I was like, listen, you know, maybe when I listen to it again, and I think I listened to it like while I was running or something, so that I could like really focus on it. Maybe I'll get it. And uh, I didn't. So I don't know what to tell you. But that's that. And I'm looking at the, you know, what he said to me that this Ukraine thing will pretty much be a nothing burger for markets. And I can't help but think, you know, maybe Ben is right. And obviously Ben is a fucking super smart dude. And I can't wait to have him back on the podcast. But if this Russia and China thing plays out, or the Luke Roman scenario plays out where Russia wants to settle, you know, purchases of its oil and rubles or gold, uh, it's not going to be a nothing burger for markets. It will have a profound and long-lasting effect. It may change the global economy as we know it. So that's my analysis. That's what you pay for, right? If you're a fucking subscriber, it will either be a nothing burger or it will change the global economic system for the rest of our lives for as long as we know it or something in between. That's my Wonderful analysis uh, for you. Anything is possible from the worst case scenario to the best case scenario. Thank you very much for listening. Please pass the human shit whiskey because I'm very thirsty. And despite the name, it's actually a little bit better than most people think. (laughs) ARC is another thing I want to talk about real quick. You know, this stock, the ETF here, I wrote about the other day because there's some names in this ETF that I actually don't think are terribly priced. You know, I had this moment the other day where I was looking at Zoom at like $110 a share and looking at PayPal at 97 and uh, looking even at Roku close to 100 and thinking to myself, eh, maybe it's time. You know, my new test for buying things is, would I buy this lower? You know, when I bought Target the other day at 190, I was thinking if it beefs earnings and goes to 150, would I buy it there again? And I was like, yeah, I would. You know, so that's the test that I've been giving myself. That's why, you know, when I wrote about Chewy and Robinhood, I wrote an article called Two Falling Knives that I'll continue to catch because, look, I, I said Chewy's at whatever, 38, and Robinhood's at 14, and I'll buy them as low as they go because I think there's brand equity there in both of their names that I think will prevent them from going to zero, um, and they will eventually be uh, 
considered to be strategic assets for an acquirer uh, in in the case of both of those names. So I'm looking at some of these uh, names in the ARC ETF, or I was look, kind of looking at them independently, and then I realized they're ARC components, right? And I'm and I'm fucking short ARC, uh, A R K K. And I'm thinking like, well, what am I doing? Am I betting against myself here? You know, like I got to stop and I got to look in the mirror here for a second. Like, how is it possible that I think ARC is going to go lower, but I'm sitting here looking at some of its components saying, man, these things have been absolutely porked to the tune of 80 or 90 percent. And maybe it's time to step in. Um, but there's a great reason for that. And uh, and that reason is Tesla. So I'll read you a little bit of what I wrote about this last week. Uh, I couldn't help but laugh. I was starting to dabble in some names like Palantir and Zoom. Palantir was at 10. I think it went under 10 at one point. Uh, Zoom was, I think, 105 or 110 at the time of this. Um, that Kathy Wood had tucked into her ARC fund. I had to look in the mirror and have an internal dialogue with myself. Was I, too, becoming the world's worst asset manager? Simply buying whatever tech bullshit I wanted to because it offered the appearance of being cheap, even though maybe it wasn't? And more specifically... How could I be writing to my subscribers about the fact that I think ARC is going to go lower when I'm sitting here buying some of its components? Great question, Chris. You know, look, I may do dumb shit, but I assure you I will always tell you about it. I assure you that I'll always be honest with you about it. Um, but then I said, look, it's entirely possible for numerous of the ETF's components to still be cheap and for the fund to plunge because Tesla was still almost a 9% weighting in the fund and Tesla's trading at $860 a share today. Um, you know, and Tesla is a name that individually I'm short. So what does the pair trade look like? You know, I got long some Coinbase, I think around 170. I got long some, uh, what else did I buy? I bought some Zoom. Uh, back at like 110, I think I bought uh, Palantir, a bunch of this nonsense. Um, but I stayed short ARC and I stayed short Tesla. Um, because again, while the rest of ARC's components have been torched, Tesla is up like 8% on the year. Um, and so that just means that it's possible that, you know, ARC still plunges. If all these shitty names stay where they are now and then Tesla decides to come off its, you know, Coke bender that it's been on for 24 months then ARC could plunge. Uh, you know, if everything falls, obviously it will plunge uh, in that instance. Um, you know, and if Tesla falls and some of these other names come back and revert to the mean a little bit, if that's possible, if they aren't still grossly overvalued, and I'm not making any kind of uh, proclamation about that, I'm just saying in general, um, then it could kind of hold steady. So it's interesting. You know, I think for ARC to move much lower, you need Tesla to start beefing it, or you need a broader market sell-off, which is uh, also a possibility. So, um, you know, I wrote that, what did I write? Anything relevant? Not really. I wrote that, you know, ARC is kind of here at, it was at 65 at the time I wrote this. It remains in stock pickers territory. And what I meant by that was, you know, some names in the ETF I liked uh, and thought maybe were opportune and other ones weren't. And so, you know, pair trades like being short ARC and Tesla while being long select components of the ETF, which is exactly what the case was for me, are extremely interesting to me. The fact that Kathy Wood recently got scared out of Palantir altogether is also interesting to me as I look to add the name around $10. Speaking of which, that position is already up 20% from the time that Kathy, Miss Nobody is Doing Research Like Us, uh, sold out of her position. That's what she said. Nobody is doing research like us. That's her quote. We're all just sitting around like, nope, nobody is. <laughs> You're putting that out there as some type of brag, and we're putting it out there as, you know, maybe here's here's where the problem is for you. Maybe here's where you should be looking. You know, the treading into those waters has been careful. I still think that tangible assets, real estate, gold, commodities, etc., are where it's at. I think that there's such a wide range of possible outcomes here with regard to Russia and Ukraine um, from, you know, all the way from nuclear war and rewriting the global economic system as we know it to, you know, tomorrow them agreeing to come to a ceasefire and the Dow going to 40,000, right, that, uh, that anything's possible. I think the Fed is still going to have to hike. One thing I do agree with Ben Hunt on is that the Fed will still have to hike because inflation is still going to be out of control and inflation is going to be further out of control as a result of all of this volatility in commodity markets now that is coming as a result of the geopolitical tensions. So the Fed is really, you know, they're boxed in twice as much as they were a couple of weeks ago. 
where they said, oh, man, no, maybe it's a difficult decision, but we're going to have to raise rates. And now it's like we have no fucking option to raise rates, and they're going to raise rates into an economic slowdown and into a geopolitical hot mess. And that could still wind up being a shit show for markets. As I wrote a couple of days ago, the article is called... Um, from my blog, we now interrupt your regularly scheduled 20 to 40% market crash for this important message. As I wrote in that article, um, you know, I think that easing or Fed indicating that it's going to ease may stave off the crash further for a little while longer, but I still think it's coming. I still think stocks need to re-rate lower um, as a result of rates rising and, and still here now as a result of the geopolitical tension. You know, the, the NASDAQ at the Qs at 340 right now, um, I think is absurd. I think we need to see them back down towards 300. Uh, you know, we're at levels now that were all-time highs just, you know, 10 months, 12 months ago. Uh, and so we haven't really, you know, I think we need to fall back to where we were prior to COVID, uh, which I think would put the SPY at like 300 or something. You know, we would need to fall like 30% or something from here to get back to those levels. Um, and, you know, look, going into COVID, 99 out of 100 people would have told you we were at fever pitch in terms of valuations anyways then. So if we fall back to those levels now, well, you know, can the does the economic growth make up for it? You know, did we justify the multiples there like we did then, given the, you know, the, the, the picture? There's a, you know, if we lived in a sane world, where the market reacted normally and kind of quote unquote the way it should, um, you know, you could make a very strong case for a 50% pullback from where we are right now or a 40% pullback from where we are right now. Will that happen? Will the Fed let it happen? Um, you know, who knows? But certainly I think the floor here is still a little shaky. I think the foundation is nowhere near as strong as people think it is. You know, the, the trend is your friend, as Ben said. Uh, and that trend right now is lower for markets. I think most rallies now are bear market rallies. I use them to, you know, put on short exposure. I do think there are select undervalued assets that have been disproportionately hit as a result of this panic. That's where I'm looking. I still like energy. I still like tangible assets and, you know, tech names that have unique value propositions that I think you know, like, look, Zoom isn't unique. It doesn't have a great moat, but everybody uses it all the time. And a 30 multiple isn't insane for somebody to go out and start thinking about what it might cost to acquire a Microsoft, a Google, something like that. You know, PayPal is something that, you know, look, I use it all the time uh, and I use Venmo. Uh, and so, you know, that's something where, you know, at a certain price to earnings ratio, you start looking at it as like, eh, well, you know, this is still going to grow. It's part of the digital financial future. Um, you know, it has competition. It doesn't have a. It doesn't have you know an insane moat. There's companies like Square, etc., out there that compete with it. Um, but you know, there's points where it just starts to look cheap, uh, even though it is a tech stock, and even though you know that multiple may not be, it may not trade at five times earnings. Um, but you know, relative to where it's going to be in 10, 20 years from now. I uh, think some of those things offer interesting value propositions. Palantir too. Palantir is a great example because it's fucking super overvalued, right? The valuation is ridiculous, but you know it has allied itself with the United States government, the Department of Defense, etc., uh, very closely. And so I just think that over the course of you know a decade or 15 years, that reversion to the mean means that it's going to go much higher. So we will see about that. I mean, that's a stock that traded 25, 30. Uh, just 12 months ago. And so, you know, at $10, I think it becomes interesting. Um, you know, from there, it's a, it's a stock picker's market. But anyways, all right, fools, I got shit to do. I'm out of here. Thank you guys for listening. And if you'd like, subscribe to my blog, Fringe Finance. The link is in the podcast description. And I write there almost daily. Peace.